0: This is Comic episode 772, A Conversation with Andy Rundon. comic Shenanigans podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 772. It's a conversation with Andy Runton. Andy is the creator of the uh, beloved character Owley. Um, Owley was the star of a series of different books uh, that originally were first published in the early uh, 2000s, and then uh, they're actually now making a resurgence. They're being published by Scholastics under their graphics imprint. Um, we talk about uh, his work creating Owly and uh, working on it. Uh, for those who do, have never seen Owley before, Owley is a, is a wonderful little owl who has adventures with his, with his best friend, Wormy. It's an all ages comic. Uh, you can be, I would say, as old or as young as you want to be. I mean, I when I first came to these books, I was probably 23, 24. I think I was reading them in 2007 uh, when I first kind of got introduced to it, and I just absolutely fell in love with it and adored it, and I have loved Owley for years. And then uh, I've actually wanted to have Andy on the show for a while, and uh, when we were exchanging emails, he said, oh, you know, I'm really busy with the new book. And I was like, oh, my God, there's a new Owley book? How did I not know this? Because uh, I had picked up the original five ser- five books, which we talk about ex- extensively in the interview. And I'd also picked up the two um, uh, larger picture books that they, they had done as well, uh, which I believe were 2011 and 12. Um, and I got those from my son when he was maybe less than a year old. I was just so excited to be able to have more Owly, uh in in my um, in my house. And, uh, yeah, so it turns out that Owly, uh the original books are coming back in print. But now they're a little bit remixed and we talked about that in the interview as well uh, now they're in color and they have some words uh that was the something that was really special about the original ones is that um andy used uh, symbols uh and expressive language on his characters to convey emotions to convey, convey what was actually going on and that didn't actually use dialogue uh and, and it turns out there's a, there was originally a reason for that uh, in terms of uh, when Ali was first being created so um I think you're, if you're, if you know Ali, you're really going to enjoy this interview. Uh, we're really going to do some deep dives into some minutiae. Uh, in, ta- in fact, we even talked about some of the, the covers for some of the, uh, the different volumes that came out. Uh, I was just curious about something and uh, it was really interesting to kind of hear the answer. Um, and there is going to be a sixth book. Um, he's been working on it for a long time and we're finally going to see it at some point. It's part of the publishing plan. So, anyways, this was a, a tremendous joy to be able to sit down and talk with Andy. Um, again, he was very giving. Of his time and really giving um, an insight into his process and all the things that happen, the ups and the downs that happen with Owlley along the way. Uh, if you have not picked up Owlley's uh, adventures, you really should. Um, the newest uh, published version, which is easy to find in bookstores or Amazon, uh, what have you, is uh, called Owlley the Way Home, and uh, it's again the first of six books. Um, and so you're you're getting in on the not this is, you're getting on on the ground floor, so to speak, of these new remixed versions, which are all in color, and uh, again they're they're good for the entire. Family family um so sit back and enjoy this episode with andy you can email me at comic shenanigans at gmail.com you can rate the show on itunes subscribe to us on itunes and also listen to us on stitcher um and we also had just to tease some upcoming things i'm going to be sitting down in the next month with al ewing uh writer of the well currently writing immortal hulk um i'm going to be hopefully um arranging something with barry kitson um who's a legendary uh, artist i can't wait to talk with him uh famed colorist uh, laura martin uh if you're if you were taking out a um um... Mm-hmm. A bingo card for Ruse, uh, the old CrossGen book, and uh, we're trying to get it fill up your bingo card. I'm almost got my bingo card complete in terms of the creators who worked on the original uh, Ruse uh, run uh, before other other creatives came on after the first year. Because I've talked with Mark Wade about Ruse, I've talked with Butch Geis and Mike Perkins, and now I got uh, Laura Martin. So I'm very excited about that one as well. This is all stuff coming up in the next couple of weeks, hopefully. Um, anyways, I will get out of the way and let Andy uh, talk all about uh, the wonderful. T- of a little owl named Dudley. Enjoy. Andy, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. Uh well, thank you so
1: much for having me Adam. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, I've been very excited about uh, talking to you for a long time, ever since I was like, oh, wait, I, maybe I can reach out to him, maybe I can talk to him, because I've loved Owly since I first discovered it. Um, I was saying off off mic that I first discovered it 13 years ago in 2007, and it, it hit such a sweet spot. It was just such a, a heartwarming story uh, of this lovable character, and uh, I've always wanted to kind of pick your brain about it, so this is a very exciting avenue to be able to kind of talk about Owly, but before we do, I guess we should kind of rewind the clock. And when did you first you know start drawing and, and figuring out that you? had an artistic talent
1: well um you know growing up I, that was the thing you know when when you would uh, go around the class and everybody would say the stuff that they like to do that was that was what I always liked to do was I loved to draw you know so that was the thing that I did the most and um um but the funny thing is is I never really I didn't take a lot of art classes I had a hard time really um drawing stuff that other people wanted me to draw like you know still lives and things like that i just um it, it didn't do it for me and and so the art classes i really kind of avoided them and i just kind of just kept drawing uh by myself and then uh i wasn't sure how to make a living doing art uh because uh i just had no idea so i went to school to be a designer actually a product designer industrial designer and uh I was going to make, you know, products and maybe work for Apple or something, you know, and uh, I didn't like it at all. (laughs) It was just too many people involved. It's like a big group project. And um, uh, what you do as the artist is a very small piece of the puzzle. And um, when I finally started doing it, I was like, for real, you know, and getting paid, I was like a... This is not what I want to do, and so I tried other aspects of that. I tried doing uh, graphic design, and then I tried doing uh, interface design. I loved all those things, but um, I was an interface designer, and I worked for Motorola. And then, um, uh, when September 11th happened, and uh, kind of at that point, this is 2001. Dot com bubble burst. Mm. Um, just you know, our company, the our little branch of the company was shut down, and I was out. I was out of out of a job, and at that time, if you were an interface designer, it was there were thousands of interface designers and uh, graphic designers out of jobs because all of those websites were shut down. Nothing was happening, and um, I was trying to find another job, and I just said, you know what, I'm. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to try to do something that I've wanted to do for a long time, and that is make comics. And so I was, uh, this is 2001, I was you know, 28, 29, and I was like, I'm going to try this. And I didn't have any kind of training in comics or anything like that. I just knew what I liked uh, to read. And so I just started doing it, and eventually I, I had a few uh, ideas that didn 't really go anywhere, and then when I finally embraced what I really wanted, the stories
0: I wanted to read um, that 's where Ali came from now is obviously very unique because I mean if anyone has read it or should, I should encourage them obviously to read it i mean it 's so interesting because at least in the original alley, there was no dialogue at all it was you know it was black and white, and but there 's such a charm to it because you 're speaking through symbols and and you're you 're finding you're, like you 're really more than most storytelling, like you're, you're telling every, every aspect of the story is in your pencils. Like if you're not indicating what the emotions are, you're not going to feel them because there's no dialogue to help kind of, ex, you know, kind of expedite that process. Everything is on the page. So how did you decide, first of all, to make it kind of wordless um, and then to make it depend so much on your ability to make the characters act?
1: Yeah. It's um it was really an organic process but it, it also comes from the fact that I didn't know what I was doing. Right. <laughs> and so I originally I originally did this little comic and it's uh it's the comic that a lot of people try to do when they first start making comics. It's the combination of everything that you love, right? And and you see movies that still get made like this where it's Star Wars and and um, all the cartoons you loved as a kid all mashed up together in something, you know, that and, you know, aliens and ninjas and <laughs> and secrets and um, mysteries and all that stuff was in this tiny little story that I was going to tell. And um, I had this, but I didn't really know where it was going because a lot of comics, when you read them, uh, they don't know where they're going. You know, and, um, I just was like, well, it's, this is the way it works. And, um, I actually, this, I, I started trying to do comics while I was still working at Motorola. So at night I would go home and make these comics. And, um, uh, at work, there was a lady that was in the cubicle next to me. And, uh, her name was Kelly and she was a technical writer and, um, she was a big, uh, A total nerd and loved everything. You know, her kids were into Pokemon. She knew Harry Potter, you know. So this was, she was definitely, she knew comics. And uh, I had her read this first comic I did. And she was like, you know, the artwork's great, but the dialogue is terrible. And she was totally right. The dialogue was terrible. It was all recycled Saturday Night Live jokes and, you know, little in-jokes and stuff like that, and, I, and it was clumsy. It was clumsy. And so, when I started drawing Alley, I just left the words off. I just left it off because I was so, I knew that I couldn't write words. I, I knew that, well, I thought, I can't write these words to make them fit. So I'm just going to leave them off. Um, The other aspect of that was that I was an interface designer, so I used icons instead of words sometimes, and then the missing piece was that I was a really struggling reader when I was growing up, and so whenever I would uh, try to read a book, if it had too many words, I would just completely freeze up, and I couldn't read it, and so comics is what taught me how to read, you know, G.I. Joe and Transformers comics are the ones that I got started with, and I learned how to read by reading these comics that were broken up in small little chunks that you could digest. But what that meant was that I focused on the pictures a lot. And so this is the comic for me. So I was like, you know, I'm just, I'm not going to have any words. I'm not going to have any words at all. And let's just see what happens. And, um, my original idea was to show it to, um, potential publishers, and if they liked it, they could bad words. You know, that was my theory. Um, but when I finally showed it to people, they actually liked it the way it was. And uh, so it was really inspiring, but it was all kind of a big happy accident.
0: When you do that initial version, and again, it's, you know, wordless – Was the kind of the iconography or always that kind of using the symbols, was that always kind of there from the start as a way of kind of using shorthand to get the idea across without actually having to use words themselves?
1: So the original story I had, um, you know, I I didn't know anything about comics. Right. And I, um, uh, you know, I'm in Atlanta and I had friends that were um, friends with the guys from uh, Gaijin Studios uh, which is in Atlanta. And that's a, there there's a lot of people, um, Brian Stelfreeze and uh, Colleen Hamner and Carl Story, a lot of uh, Laura Martin, all these people that were involved in comics, uh, you know, superhero mainstream comics. And so one of the big conventions in Atlanta is called Dragon Con, and it's huge. And um, I, I went to a panel at Dragon Con to try to learn how to write and draw comics, you know, and it was, it was, uh, Brian and I think Cully too. And they said, look, if you want to learn to draw comics, if you want to show somebody that what you're doing, don't do pinups, don't show, don't do these epic stories, try to tell a four page story, you know, just from beginning to end in four pages. And if you do, if you can do that, and you can show it to somebody, then they can really get an understanding of where your skills are, and what you need to work on. And then you, you just keep doing that, and you get better at um, as you go. And so that's what I did: is I came up with a little four page story that I was going to tell with Owly. And originally, there were little text like just to like set the stage, like uh, like uh, you know just a few words, like it's morning in the forest, you know, and little Owls are awake. And that, that was the only words in the entire thing. And then I, so I didn't use any dialogue boxes or anything. I just used the acting of the characters. And um, uh, I really liked that. But when I told my second story, I wanted there to be more interaction between the characters. And that's where the, uh, the icons came in. Because mm-hmm. I was like, I don't want to write words. Uh, so I got to come up with something, you know, so.
0: Now, in terms of Ali himself, where did that design or that concept come from to kind of go with, you know, animals? I remember, I I can't remember when it was, but a few years ago I was speaking to... it was Peter Sanderson, who's a comic historian, and he was talking about how most people kind of start when they're younger, usually, especially in his age, because uh, you know he's much older. He's in his, I think, early, late sixties, early seventies, and he was saying how you know when he was younger, people kind of graduate; they would graduate to superheroes, but they would start with the kind of what he called the funny animal comics. So it's just interesting that you know, you're, when you first uh-huh. do your own major work, you're using kind of these animals as opposed to human beings, et cetera. How easy a decision was that? Was that did you always kind of have the character of Ali in mind or what was that process at determining who was going to be the protagonist and how it was going to be set?
1: So when I was growing up, I, when, you know, everybody's trying to draw, you know, and, uh, when it came to drawing people, I just could never do it. I could never get it to look. I could do it. I just, I didn't, I was never happy with the way that people looked right. And, That's really one of the reasons why I never considered I could be a um, a cartoonist, because I couldn't draw people very well, right? And um, so when I was in um, sixth grade, yeah, the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, black and white comics came out. And um, I was blown away by these animals that were like... and, and And also it was black and white, so I could see the lines. I knew exactly... What was happening? I knew how I could draw this, and the thing was, is for some reason I could draw the turtles, no problem. But when it came to the people, I couldn't draw them. If I could draw them, if they didn't have faces, you know, which worked out well with ninjas and things. Like that. But for some reason, I just never got to a level that I was comfortable with with people. And so, whenever I do fun, I always do animals, and I loved animals, and I loved. All of the things, um, all the details, all the anatomy of an animal, I could totally get behind. When it came to a person, that's a much more complicated thing, and I just kind of always avoided it. Um, So I always loved drawing animals. That was just my thing, right? And then um, when I was in college, I stayed at home. We didn't have a lot of money. I, I actually went to Georgia Tech, which is in Atlanta. And I live in the suburbs of Atlanta, and so I would commute. And um, uh, being the design program, we pull a lot of all-nighters with these projects that just require an immense amount of time to create. You have a two-hour class you will spend 60 hours a week making these prototypes and stuff like that for you. And And um, so you're up all night a lot of time. And so I'm at home. I'm up all night building in my room. And, uh, then I'd just kind of go to sleep. I'd crash. And then the classes wouldn't be till in the evening sometimes. So I would leave these little notes for my mom that said, look, hey, don't worry about me. I was up super late and I don't need to get to class till, you know, eight o'clock at night, eight o'clock PM. And, um, she started calling me a little night owl. And so I started just doodling this little owl <laughs> on the notes over time. And uh, he'd be doing stuff, he'd be building prototypes, he'd be painting, he'd be uh, working on the computer, he'd be, you know, doing all kinds of stuff. And I loved it. I loved drawing that little owl. It, it got to the point where um, it was one of my favorite parts of night, was looking forward to what I was going to draw, this little owl. So this is, I was in college, so I, I didn't ever really draw Owly in the comics, in a comic form, for another Four years, you know? Um, But he was always there. And uh, I was trying to do other things. I was trying to do comics. I I did a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle comic, you know, thinking, okay, I can, at least I can do the turtles. I can try that. And, And that didn't work. And then I tried aliens, and I didn't really like that. And then I tried doing people, and I just couldn't do it. And so I just, one day, I was like, what if I did something with, a little owl that I like, and that's where it. it all
0: kind of fell into place. What I like about the, those initial four books is that, I mean, you expand the cast and you have a lot more characters interact. You know, as you're developing Owley, how much did you want to, again, expand that cast and bring in other characters, or did you have kind of a a sense in your mind of how you wanted that world to kind of open up and the different types of characters you would bring in, or did it happen kind of as each project grew?
1: Yeah, so just about all of the characters in Alley are based on animals that I've interacted with, and um, so you know Alley's best friend for me was the idea that came from um, in uh, in Atlanta. The, the ground isn't isn't dirt; it's clay, like on a baseball field, right? And so when it rains, it um, everything that's in the clay has to get out of the clay, or it's going to drown. And so when it rains. In Atlanta, the streets are littered with earthworms, and the sidewalks too. And this is this is common in a lot of places, but especially in Atlanta. And so one day I was um, I was walking, and I did not want any of these little uh, uh, worms. So, so basically, once it stops raining, the sun comes out, and they just fry on the on the sidewalk. I didn't want any of them to fry. I didn't want any. So I, I rescued them all, and I put them all off in the grass. And then later on that night, when I drew up. Little note for my mom. I added a little worm because that was, and it just, it just fit. And so the same thing is true with uh, uh, bluebirds, a little possum, and uh, any of the other birds, and uh, a chipmunk, and things that show up. It's animals that I've interacted with in real life, and and I just try to imagine what it would be like if they lived in the Outley's world. And so. It is true, though, as it, you know, it starts off, Ali is very lonely, and then over time he has this entire menagerie of <laughs> friends that, um, that have grown into uh, quite a little family that he deals with, um, and that's, that's affected the stories in a lot of ways, um, but, it, but it was always fun, it was always like, um, it's weird, it, it's almost like they're, they're characters that live in, in, real, in a real world, and I'm just kind of peeking in on them. And, and uh, I can kind of figure out who I want to place in certain ways, but then they kind of take the story in different directions. So mm-hmm. I don't really have a plan for the whole thing. You know, it's not, um, it's not a huge plan. It's, it's, I really just told all the individual stories because that's the, kind of, uh, that's the kind of books I always loved and that's the kind of shows I always loved. You could just pick it up anywhere. I mean, as much as I love uh, comics in general, where you, you have to know the, all of the backstory, and, you know, I had one of my favorite comics growing up was the Marvel Universe, where it's just stories about the about the people and all the stuff that they went through and everything like that, so that you understand where they're coming from. But when it came to Owly, I, I wanted everything to be self-contained, you know? So each story it does build on itself, but you don't have to know those stories to enjoy the one that you mean. No. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I currently um, there are five books complete and there's a six book that I'm, I'm still, I still have to finish. Um, and then I'm in the process of uh, coloring and editing all those to
0: make them uh, and then they're, they're being released. So, so, so I'm curious when. So when you're working on that first one. So first of all, when do you or how does the um, the original kind of uh, pitch to Top Shelf or how did the, how did that kind of come about that they were going to publish those first few books?
1: Yeah, so that four page story that I told you about, um, I actually I had stumbled upon Top Shelf in Atlanta because they're based in Atlanta at Dragon and. I, when I saw their graphic novels, I knew that was the kind of thing I wanted to do. You know, this was not superheroes. It wasn't, um, it wasn't funny animals. These were, these were emotional comics, and they were real, and, uh, you know, they were black and white. They were very visceral, and I, when I found independent comics, I just fell in love, and it kind of rekindled my love of comics in general. And so when I created um, the Alley four page story, I I took it to them at a convention in Orlando called MegaCon. I drove down there because I knew they were going to be there, and I showed them that story. And I didn't know anything about the world of comics, you know. Um, and they said, uh, oh, "Yeah, you know, this is uh, this is nice. Do you have any more?" And I was, I said, "No." That's all I, that's all I had, and uh, you know, I didn't understand that uh, you know and this is something that a lot of people that are getting into comics that you know they think kind of like in uh, baseball or anything right like you, you, you get signed and then you're you, you got it made right and it's um, not the way it works in uh, in publishing at all um, so basically I they liked it but they wanted me to do more and so I went home and tried to do more stories and they liked those. And then I tried to do more stories, and they liked those. And um, But I didn't have a, a full book yet, like a, a book of, of, for in terms of economics. And they needed at least 100 pages, like 120 pages. That's a lot for somebody who's never done comics before, right? So mm-hmm. um, I had to completely... Uh, I had to come up with a story that I liked. I had to, uh, you know, and I had nothing to draw on. It it was really uh, challenging. But I eventually wrote a story, and it was about 50 pages. So I was like, okay, well, halfway, halfway. But it it didn't feel like I could drag it out anymore. And so I was like, all right, well, the next one I'm going to do, it's going to be a little bit longer. And the next one was about, about 70 pages. And it was like, oh, okay. I almost made it. And um, <laughs> top shelf, um, they still didn't feel like they had something they could publish, right? Because these, this wasn't uh, like a, gra- a complete story from beginning to you know beginning to end in 120 pages. But they suggested that I try to get a grant to help it get published. And um, Peter Laird of, uh, of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, at the time, this was 2003, he had this thing called the Zurich Foundation, and that's uh, with an X, X-E-R-I-C, and um, they would pick a couple of, of stories every year that, that from submissions, and they would give you like $5,000 to help fund the printing of the book. And um, Topshel said, you know, if I could get that grant, it would help take away any kind of risk that would be involved in doing some kind of printing for me and seeing if we could sell them. I mean, that's the other thing about independent comics: the numbers are small. You know, like uh, your print run is going to be three thousand, five thousand books at the most. That's that's a lot of books, you know. And um, so five thousand dollars would almost cover the printing bill, and then they would help sell it, and then it would just we would figure out. If these things are, if if anybody would like this. Um, And I went through that whole process and I didn't get the grant. And so um, I didn't really know what to do. And that's when Top Shelf decided okay, we'll take this story and this story and we'll put them both together and that will be the first Audi volume. And so that's where the first book came in.
0: When you're writing that first book, so I mean, this is maybe a silly question, but I was I'm always curious about when people name things. So the first those first stories were "The Way Home" and "The Bittersweet Summer." But obviously, they in the newest recoloring version, you've, you've changed the names of the story. I'm curious why that happened.
1: Yeah, um, Scholastic did not like the Bittersweet Summer, and I love that title. I love that title. And the main thing was is they wanted the first book to just have a much simpler um, title. So we just dropped The Bittersweet Summer and it just became The Way Home. Because there, there is a theme in both of the stories. And it just, it does fit. But when you're trying to come up with the title, it is so hard to come up with a title. And I, I can still remember when me and my mom were talking and we came up with the title for The Bittersweet Summer, it was like, oh my gosh, that's it! It's perfect, but, um, I think the thing about, um, definitely, you know, so the books are, you know, being re-released from Scholastic, and they're definitely targeting a younger audience than originally. My books were just meant to be thrown out there, and whoever bought them, bought it. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we didn't really know. That's where the term all-ages comics comes in. It's like, um, it's for everybody, and, um when you're talking about little kids bittersweet is a hard concept to really sell them on and so it seemed like it was basically going to be a roadblock and so let's just remove that roadblock and just have it be the way home
0: interesting because yeah because I'm, I'm just i'm looking at my volumes mm-hmm. now so i have both the original well actually technically the third printing of the original book and the uh, newest scholastic book and so you You've changed the uh, again the title of the stories from again the way home to finding home and the Bitter Street summer to flying home. Was that just to kind of keep a synchronicity with the, the two uh, stories so that it would be similar? Or?
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right because I liked the way home. I wanted it to just. I wanted that. I wanted that to be the title of the book, if anything else. And so the others, it was kind of like, well, what can we do to um, have these new variations on that theme? And um, and uh, we worked with them. For, we worked on it for a long time, but
0: I'm, I'm happy with what we came up with. I'm happy with what we came up with. When that first hourly volume comes out through uh, Top Shelf, how quickly did it catch on? And like, how did the discussions go for again expanding the series and doing more? Like, was it a pretty fast thing, or was it a kind of a slow burn? It was. Uh, it
1: was. Relatively slow. Uh, I mean, the first book came out, and uh, um, you have to understand the, the other the other aspect of what I was facing is this is two thousand three, right? I mean, graphic novels it's a, it's a, it was in a very different place, right? So if you walked into a, a Barnes and Noble or Borders, which was still around at the time, and um, you wanted to buy a graphic novel. You would be in this little shelf in the corner, and it would be Watchmen, The Dark Knight, you know, a couple of Hellboy volumes, and maybe one of your books, right? Maybe. But it was so, it, the, the, the shelf space was so small. So uh, regular retail bookstores were, weren't really where we sold our books. We sold them all through the direct market. And as you know, with the direct market, when I mean, who knows what's going to happen now, but in the past when they would buy things, there's no returns, right? Um, So comic book stores work with a different set of rules than regular bookstores work with. When you walk into a bookstore and you see, you know, 200 copies of a book on a shelf, you're like, wow, that's incredible. Well, the bookstore didn't really commit to those books. They said, I think we can sell those. And if they don't sell them, they return them. And no, no harm, no foul. The bookstore isn't out the money. That's not the way it works with comic bookstores. You know? When they take a chance on something, they're stuck with it. And so um, what that means is that comic bookstores are very slow to um, try anything new. Because there's a massive risk involved, you know. I mean, each of the Aldi books they buy for five dollars each, and they sell them for ten dollars, so they only make five dollars on each on each book. They don't have a lot of space, so it really took until the third Aldi book came out when they finally really really got on board. And a, a big part of that was uh, free comic book day issues that I did for wow. Aldi yeah I did brand new stories and um that weren't in any of the books right they were brand new um and we released those and that really helped us um really helped us in the in the comic book market and so but it was still it was a very gradual burn it was it was good, but you know like I never got rich off of those books or anything like that you know so but it was enough to make a living. It was enough to do it along with conventions and uh, and selling the books. And um, yeah, it was uh, it was really exciting. It was it was still incredibly exciting to be able to have a book that wasn't a mainstream character. It wasn't anything. Uh, there was no <laughs> there's no fights. Uh, there's no there's no superheroes. There's nothing in there. And um, uh, it, it was so wonderful to meet all the fans that I would get in the comics, in the comic world, you know, because I think they could tell that I love comics and this was just this was my take
0: on it. Yeah. And um, I think they could tell. And it felt good. I'm curious, uh, this is kind of a, a weird question, but uh, one thing I noticed is that um, obviously with your design background as well, like, what went into kind of designing the original trade dresses? Now, I have... I think the second printing of books uh, two and three and it with kind of the, just the color background and then you have a kind of like a almost like a photograph on the inset. And then obviously with the, I guess, right. the fourth and the fifth volumes and also the third printing of the first volume, you, you move to a, a different kind of um, paper stock in terms of what the cover even feels like. It's much more tactile and it's now full bleed uh, image. Uh-huh. What kind of went into the decisions to kind of change the trade dress as you went along?
1: So the the first books were actually uh, so um, I don't know if, I, I'm sure you're familiar with the term of mini comics, but you know they're just eight and a half by eleven paper that you print on uh, laser printers or photocopiers, and you fold them and you staple them and you sell them. And that's a very uh, it's a big staple at uh, independent comic festivals like SBX and TCAF uh, and things like that. Um, and that was the world i came from right so when you're creating a uh, design that can fit in that world it's difficult to do full bleed anything because you if you've ever tried to make a color copy you know that the color doesn't go all the way to the edge of the paper right so you've got to you've <laughs> got to figure out a way to come up with a design that works and so the original alley volumes are based on a little bit of the design I came up with for my mini comics, just translated into books, and um, I actually wanted them to be simple. I wanted them to be, um, I wanted them to be calm in a world that was full of um, all of these splash pages and you know, and, you know, cra- you know how crazy uh, comic book covers are, you know, just all the colors, everything like that. I wanted to be a little bit more screen to really show you what what was in the books. And one of the other pieces of that was to make sure that the same artwork that was on the cover is it's in the book, right? So I didn't I didn't have a cover artist or anything like that. I was always so upset with cover artists <laughs> as a kid. You know, like oh, I wanted I can't believe this guy didn't draw the whole book. I you know, I felt bamboozled. Right. So um Anyways, there was, I, think, I think the word I'm going for is honesty. There was a lot of honesty in those original uh, covers. And uh, I really liked them. Um, when it came to book four, um, Barnes & Noble finally said, okay, hey, and Borders, they said, okay, hey, we'd like to carry some of these in our stores. So this was like 2006. And it was like, okay, great. And they were like, there's a but there's one uh, condition. You have to change the covers. Mm -hmm. They're like, okay, uh, what do you want? They're like, something splashy, something big, something exciting. And I was like, okay, let me try to come up with something. And so I kind of did this kind of like chalky kind of rendering of of what Ali's World could look like. And uh, they really liked it. And so that's why basically starting from book four, the covers look different, and then when we reprinted books one,
0: two, and three, I updated those covers as well. To okay. Well, I, I was always curious because I, 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 I don't have a matching set, I guess, because my volumes two and three are second printings, and before the third printings change them, I should actually try and see if I can track down third printings of those. Um, one thing I always wanted to comment is, uh, on the first volume. So again, when you do that, that change and you kind of add that chalkiness to the color, um, I absolutely love that cover. Like there's just such a warmth to, I'm colorblind, so I might be wrong in some of the actual colors, but it just always had a very calm, warm effect on that on the reprinting of the first volume. Um, that always really, it just, I don't know, something about the eyes, it just really, it's just so pleasant and enjoyable. And, uh, it, it obviously, Oh, and that ma- matches the tone within but I always just love that one in particular uh, four and five are great too but there's something about that that first one that just looks so inviting
1: yeah I started with four and then number one was the next one I did and I was like I've got to figure out a way to make this match but uh, one of the key pieces was also that um, I believe the cover stop is called a brocade it has this very tactile um earthiness to it, and, um, uh, and one of the other things I, I actually had my publisher do, because I had the ability to kind of uh, request it, was to say, okay, look, recycle paper stock um, on the rest of these books. that's So once, once those printings came around, we changed the cover and everything, and it just has that... I, I felt like it had a much more... Um, Approachable and earthy, earthy feeling. Um, whereas, you know, the first printings, uh, they're very bold and graphic, and there's something to that too. But um, I felt like as I got further on, it got a little bit closer to what I was going for.
0: Yeah, I know. I definitely agree. Like, I do love that paper stock. There's just, as I said, like you, you pick it up. If you, there's just something very, um, I don't know. I guess it's open. And, and warm. Like, there's just something about that paper stock that makes me feel like I want to read this book. It's not glossy. It doesn't have that a sheen to it. It just feels more, I guess, earthy is, is, is probably the right way to say it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about in the comic, uh, indie, indie comics that I loved um, and that kind of, uh, you know, really uh, inspired me for a long time was this idea that it is handmade, right? It's not... Um, You're not trying to make it look all um, polished and everything. It's supposed to feel... uh, You're supposed to get a little bit of my personality through the book, you know, and um, I I really tried to embrace that
0: with uh, with those printings. With Volume 5, Tiny Tales, was that always kind of something that you wanted to do, that you'd finally kind of collect, you know, the Free Comic Day issues and every other appearance in in one big volume? Was this kind of a natural thing, or uh, was it like, you know, who's whose decision was this? Was this top shelf saying, you know, we have this good Owly stuff that we've never collected, should we put it all in one? Or was it you saying, you know, I have all this material, why don't we combine it all now?
1: Yeah, it was, it was me. Uh, we had, um, around that time, so I actually also, uh, um, have, there's two Owly picture books that are out, that were from uh, Simon & Schuster, and Owly & Wormy picture books. And, um, around that time when book five came out, I was also working on those picture books. And, um, I didn't have a lot of time to, to write all these other stories because every year I had done these free comic book state stories and they were kind of, you know, I did the first one and then after a while it was kind of expected that I'm going to write this other, um, free story every year. Right. And, um, that's it wasn't easy, and you know, doing the covers and everything like that. And it was also it was incredible time, time consuming, and I didn't get paid for it, right? Um, but those stories, once the free comic book issues went out of print, were basically lost. There, nobody could get a hold of those stories, um, and so I was like, you know, I really I'm really proud of these stories. I'd love to combine some of them and then maybe write a few other ones and kind of make it a little anthology, um, story, uh, 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 volume. And, um, and, uh, Top Shelf was okay with it. They were like, that's great because we want to, we we want another alley volume out there and let's, uh, let's figure out a way to make that work. And, um, it actually still took me a while to put that book together with all of the design. And, and, um, that, that's the other thing about independent comics is that, um, I'm the designer, right? I mean, it wasn't... With a lot of the books from Top Shelf, the artist is the designer. And that's something that isn't very common, especially in mainstream comics. You know, you're just a... You're a cog in a a bigger machine. Um, With independent comics, you you do everything. And that's... It's appealing, but it's also incredibly time-consuming, right? Um, So when it came to putting book Five together... I just picked all the ones that I really loved and I started realizing that this was going to be a pretty big book if I was going to write anything new. And so we decided to just use some of the, all of the stuff we had and then put in some other, uh, materials that were like where Allie came from and some of the original stuff. And, um, and, uh, it really came together nice and I was really proud of it. And, uh, wasn't meant to be the last issue from Top Shelf. It wasn't like a goodbye or anything like that. It was just kind of like a stopgap, like, okay, I got all this stuff. Let's put this out while I'm working on these picture books. And then after the picture books, I'll get back and do more volumes. So.
0: When the picture books come about, so like, how did, how did that kind of work out with Simon & Schuster that you were working on both of these books? I mean, they're beautiful books. Um, But there obviously what makes it different from the original five hourly volumes is that you know it's it's in full color, obviously, that's a lot more work. I would imagine so. And again, it's a you know it's a different kind of size, you're dealing with you know different um, storytelling techniques. So, how long did it take you to kind of adapt your style for now it's going to be in color, and now you don't quite have the same layouts or the same amount of panels per pages? Yeah, the
1: the picture books did not go the way we wanted to. So, uh, so you can imagine like, um, now 2008, uh, book, uh, four just came out. I mean, book, uh, book, probably book three had come out and won an Iser award. And so book four came out and we were really excited about it, but we just weren't getting a lot of traction in the bookstores. Right. and, that it's also a problem with just comics in general is that when it comes to the audience that comics, that, that traditional uh, direct market comic book stores, you know, cater to, it's not younger kids. It wasn't in 2008 by any means. And so we wanted to come up with a way to introduce Ali uh, to a broader audience and you know, therefore kind of kickstart the sales of the graphic novels, right? And and kind of hopefully everything would work together and we would sell the picture books in comic book stores. And, I mean, why not? You know, because it's Ali and the comic book stores love Ali. Surely they'll have it. And uh, we found an amazing partner to do that with, and her name was Jenny So, and she worked at Simon Schuster. And she loved Owley. She absolutely adored Owley. And she actually came to us. It was like, I want to do the books, Owley books. And this was around the time, 2008, there was a big push uh, from mainstream publishers, uh, we're talking like, like Pantheon Simon Schuster, to really get into graphic novels. And this was when... Um, around this time when graphics came out and from Scholastic and stuff like that. And, um, because they saw the potential in graphic novels and, um, uh, but, um, Jenny really saw Alley as a picture book. And I was so excited. You know, we wrote, I wrote a, the, actually the first Ali picture book was going to be the next Alley graphic novel. I just condensed it into a picture book form. And, um, I think it probably would have been better as a graphic novel. It would have had a little bit more space. But um, I felt like it, it still would work. And I had just had a good experience with Monarch Butterflies, which is the subject in that book. Um, and so we're we're working along in the process. And uh, they're loving my concept sketches. They're really excited about everything. And then Jimmy left Simon & Schuster. There was some kind of falling out. I don't really know all the details. But her entire team, all the people I've been working with, is left. And um, that's the danger of having a, uh, a a contract with a company, is that it's not with the people, right? It's with the company. And so I got shuffled around to another editor and a whole other creative team and what ended up happening is this was going to be two alley books that were going to maybe take me two years to do. That was the plan. this is 2008, 2009. I didn't finish those books until 2014 or 20, 2012, 2013 around that time. Mm -hmm. So the process got dragged out from those picture books. And, um, the editor really wasn't on board with it. You know, this wasn't her project. It was somebody else's project. The, the whole team, it was a, it was a fight for me to make these books into what I would be proud of. And in the process, we lost a lot of momentum, right? and, I was kind of bogged down in this commitment to do these books. Um, I didn't really have any allies there. I mean, eventually, everybody that I worked with was was good, but that energy was gone. And so uh, um, I was really happy with the books, but by the time they came out, um, they didn't really want to the the new uh, direction. They didn't want to have a lot to do with the direct market, so... They did put them in previews, but they didn't get a lot of traction. And so this idea we had of using these to promote the other, the graphic novels and everything, it just all kind of didn't work. And so I've got these picture books that are out there and they, they work great, but they just, it never quite meshed the way that we wanted it to.
0: This is obviously your first kind of real experience with Owley being in color. What was that experience like? I mean, obviously you've been in color on the covers before, but now you're doing interiors with colors. How did you find that impacted your artistic process? Because obviously it's very different now. You're not just dealing with the blacks. You're now able to kind of add in color, but you're also in sometimes, you know, covering up some of the line work with the colors as well. So how did you approach, you know, adding splashes of, well, not splashes, adding full color to your designs, which is obviously, you know, fundamentally changing how your work looks?
1: Yeah, so I used um, uh, the same techniques I used on those covers that we liked, right? And um, But one of the things I ran into was that, you know, on those covers, the colors are bright, but they're also subdued, right? They have a little bit more of a, a softness to them. And um, the new art direction team wanted Ali to be bright and sunny and everything like that. And so, um, I did my best to walk that line between like getting it, keeping it earthy and also making it bright. But, um, color is a very interesting aspect of comics and, um, often overlooked because it is one of the most time consuming things that you can possibly imagine. Um, as much as drawing is time-consuming, every panel in a comic is its own little painting, you know? And um, colorists, when they create a comic, you know, they're doing 500 paintings, you know, in the course of a month or whatever. It is an, It is a very grueling and time-consuming process. And so that was my first interaction with, with coloring um, for something that was more than just an illustration, right? Like, because even though the picture books don't have panels, I kind of have panels in the picture books. They just don't have lines around them, right? There's little, mm-hmm. kind of little vignettes in there that are kind of like panels. And um, it was, it was, it was very challenging. It was very challenging. But I loved, I loved seeing Ali in color because um, as, as Ali uh, became more popular, um, black and white comics. When you're trying to sell them to kids, um, it's funny. The kids actually don't have a problem with it a lot of the time. but the parents really do. They somehow think it's uh, they're not their money's worth. Right? It's uh, it's weird. <laughs> and um, and then there, and then there's also this aspect of in the same way that when we when we were growing up, if you watch black and white movies, you'd be like, oh man, I'm getting jiffed. There's no color in this black and white movie, you know? And it's, it's that same thing. It's like the, the value isn't the same. And so, there was a real reaction to the color uh, picture books. It was like, wow, I would love to be able to do that with Ollie." The problem was the time involved, right? And And the expense. If I was going to, I to hire somebody, and, uh, you know, like at that time, I was became good friends with uh, Steve Hammaker, who did all of the, colored all the Bone uh, books for Scholastic, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I talked to him about what it would take to to color Owley and uh, when he gave me how long it would take, I was like, oh my god, I I can't, I don't, I can't afford that, you know, like I've got to keep making new books, uh, maybe I can come back to coloring them. Another day, and so I just I just had to put it out of my mind because a they were going to be too expensive to print, and and b they were going to be too time consuming, and so we just kind of stuck with them in black and white, and uh, but uh, but uh, as you can tell, I, I always secretly wanted to color them. So
0: before I move on from the picture books, um, looking at them side by side, I mean they're. they're an interesting study in contrast because the first one's obviously very bright. It's a bright day. And the second one is, you know, it's all about starry nights, but they look great next to each other because there's such a juxtaposition. Was this very intentional on your, on your part or is it just kind of a function of all well, the stories told at night? So it just makes sense to have a darker color.
1: Yeah, no, it's very intentional. I, I mean, uh, that's one of the aspects of the books themselves is that, uh, I always try to make sure that, the um, as you can tell with the, with the original printings with the solid colors, like each book has like its own color, right? And mm-hmm. so I kind of tried to do that same thing when I updated the covers, right? So even though um, they're full-color paintings, there's a lot more green in book four. There's a lot more purple in book three and everything like that. I'd, and, and a lot of that is I want to – I don't want the person – this is a design – I don't want anybody to ever get confused that this is a different book, right? That this is somehow not the same, you know, that they somehow think this is the same book. I want them to know this is very different. And um, I think a lot of the fact that I wanted them to be so different comes from um, the booth setup we would have at conventions. All the books would be sitting out face up, right? And you really want your stuff to stand out. And really be colorful like that, and um, I think that probably made it, made me want to make sure that there was a lot of contrast between the between the different ones.
0: So, what was the kind of the time lapse between you know your complete work on the picture books? And then you start, I mean, years later, you're, you know, you're bringing back the original Alley books uh, in a colorized version for Scholastic. What is the actual kind of behind the scenes kind of uh, events that transpire in the middle? Um, obviously, we didn't get that, that you know, that, that new Alley book, the sixth book. We got the picture books and then you didn't have another story yet. But now we get these new colorized versions. I'm curious what happens in the interim. How does this all kind of come together where we do get these new colorized versions?
1: Right. So this is like 2013. Um, um, all the, uh, the picture books are out. I've, I've I start working on the sixth hourly book, which is called a fishy situation. And there's, I did the cover for it. Um, we were going to, um, I was just, I started working on it. And then I ended up, uh, going through a really painful divorce. And so I was completely, my legs were kind of like swept out from underneath me. And so I didn't know really what to do. The, the other part of that was that um, I decided that I wanted to try to do something different with Owley that Top Shelf just wasn't giving me. Um, I could tell at the time that um, uh, uh, so one of the issues is with having a small company, is that um, there's not a real team handling things? It, it really was just one person. So top shelf, the soul of top shelf is one person, right? And it's a lot. Comics is hard, you know. Comics is a lot, and it takes an entire. I mean, if you look at somebody like Scholastic, there are thousands of people that work at that company to make it to make it run the way it does you just can't do that as one person. And it just gets overwhelming. And the comics world had kind of evolved underneath us. And I could tell that Chris from top shelf was, I could tell he was getting very overwhelmed by a lot of stuff. And, you know, I'm getting ready to, when it came to time to like sign a renewal of my contract, I said, you know what? I want to try something different. And, my intention at the time was to do a Kickstarter because Kickstarters were just starting off, and it was everybody was going gangbusters. One of my uh, dear friends, Ryan North, had done his Kickstarter, and he made all this money, and he was selling his books. and I was like, you know, that's what I want to try to do. I want to try to do this myself again, independent, right? I wanted to, I wanted to really take over Alley. So I bought all the copies were left over from my publisher, and I just decided I'm going to do this myself. And that's when I—that's when the divorce happened. Right after I made that decision, <laughs> so I was kind of stuck, and I had no idea what to do. And um, unfortunately, uh, if anybody has gone through a divorce, things get kind of odd. And this is kind of interesting to talk about, but my ex-wife wanted a portion of Owley. And even though basically I I had met her way after we had done it, way after I had created Owley and even done any of the books. So the books were done during my marriage. But if I would have worked on book six in the process of the divorce, she could have said that she owned part of it because technically in Atlanta, Georgia, you're not... You're not, you're not divorced until you're actually divorced, right? You're mm. still considered together. It's just such a weird thing. But I had to basically stop working on Owley until the divorce was done. And the divorce dragged out for almost two years. And so after that was all settled, then I could get back to work. And um, I started working on Owley again by this time. People are sick of Kickstarters, right? Nobody, <laughs> nobody um, is following them. They're all burnt out by people that never delivered their stuff. And I don't know what to do. I am completely lost. I'm like, well, wait a second, this plan I had, I don't know what's going to happen. And um, I still really didn't know what to do. And, and um, I started talking to some of my friends, um, uh, Raina Telgemeier and uh, Ben Hackey. And um, these are people I'd known for years, you know, before they were super famous and everything. And they said, you know, you should get an agent. You should. Uh, you should the world, the graphic novel world, is different. Now. You should. You should get an agent. And you should try to find another publisher uh, that really could help you grow outly. And uh, so that's what I did. I found a wonderful agent that um, knew my work. Uh, his name is Barry Goldblatt, and his. Son was actually a huge Alley fan growing up, and it was like, wow, that's nice. Um, and uh, we pitched Alley around for a year, trying to get a publisher that would take a chance on reprinting these books or new books or whatever, and nobody would come close to Alley. They were like, look, you know, this is, there's, it's too big of a commitment um, we don't really see it. And, uh, it was, it was heartbreaking, really. Um, but I had always been friends with, uh, the people at Scholastic, mainly David Saylor, who is the, um, the publisher of graphics, right? And, um, David had always loved Ali. Like I would see him at San Diego and he would have the Ali shirt on that I gave him and, <laughs> Was just, But the thing was that I was under contract with Top Shelf. I, I couldn't do anything with Scholastic. We tried to do kind of a joint thing, but it didn't work out. And so uh, we just kind of kept in touch, and I, I really hadn't talked with him in a long time. And um, so eventually Scholastic got the pitch, got around to the pitch of the fact that Ali was on the market again and that they could do something. But even they were very scared of committing to a series of books. And so um, David had this idea of like maybe Ali can kind of teach kids about stuff and, and kind of like they' they're kind of like natural comics, you know and we can talk about the weather, we can do all that kind of stuff. I was like, okay I could I could see that. I could see I can see Owley doing that, you know like he's teaching his little animal friends about stuff and kids are learning along the way. I mean, That's the kind of stuff I loved as a kid. I could totally, at Schoolhouse Rock, you know, I could totally (laughs) get on board with that. And um, so I put this whole pitch together. And uh, meanwhile, the years are passing by, right? So that's what's happening. It's all this stuff is just churning along. And um, this is now 2016, and um, things are, you know, kind of moving slowly. And so David finally gets back to me on the pitch, and he says, uh, "You know, we like the pitch, but it wasn't what we wanted." And I said, "Okay." And he said, "He said what we decided we really want is to republish all the Alley stories." And I was just blown away. Right? I was. I was like, "What? Oh, oh my God!" And um, he said, though, he said, "Um, "There's one catch, and that's we need to add words to Alley." because um, silent books, silent comics don't sell well. That was just, that's what they said. Like, they win all these awards, they do great, they're wonderful art pieces, but there is a disconnect there. And um, the thing was, is having had Owly and selling it for all those years then, right, so uh, 12 years 13 years by that point I'd been selling Alley directly to fans to teachers to the librarians everything like that I always uh, uh, knew that everybody loved the silent aspect of it but when there was a parent and they were trying to read Alley to um, their child uh, you know if there were no words a lot of parents really struggle like it's it's hard to um, understand this as a uh, as somebody who reads comics you know for you know for your entire life you know how to read comics and you know how to read people comics right it's um, but it's its own language and a lot of parents don't know that language and they really struggle and so this thing that I had done making Ali silent as a way to um, make it more accessible for kids and everybody else had turned into a roadblock Hmm. in terms of getting more readers. And I, I knew that was there. I just didn't want to change at that point. And so when it came to scholastic saying that, I was like, I'm ready. I'm ready to try a different way of doing this so that we can, we can get, as many people as we can to read these books because you want to share it with as many people as you can and you want you don't want there to be any roadblocks to them enjoying this thing and so um kind of together we kind of came up with this concept of Ali, um Ali speaking in his symbols right and wormy being bilingual for <laughs> me being able to speak in symbols and words. And um, as I started editing the books together, I realized that really a lot of the other animals need to be bilingual because I didn't want to take any of the symbols out. You know, I didn't want uh, any of the symbols to be removed. And nothing is removed from the books. All we did is add basically translations to some of the symbols to make it easier for everybody to kind of, it's almost been like learning Ali's language as you go. And uh, it's almost, it's a little bit like subtitles, I would say.
0: Hmm. So. That's actually very a very interesting, it's yeah, an interesting... No, no, that's that, that's such an interesting way of putting it. That it's kind of like subtitles, because I mean, obviously, I I enjoyed it long before I had a child, and uh, always loved Owl and was very excited when I had my son. Be like, you know, these are some of the first things I'm probably going to read to him, because again, it's very easy to follow, and there aren't words. But as he got older, when I brought when I uh, when I recently got the the new colorized version of the Way Home, he almost enjoyed it more, and I guess probably because I had words, and it was easier for him to kind of, you know, it was just he's learning to read and this is more exciting and it's in color. And part of me is like, well, I really like that old black and white version, but I think for him, it's going to be the color version that kind of is the one that resonates with him. And I guess it speaks to that larger point you said before about how, you know, some people just prefer things not being in black and white um, and like that colorized aspect. So, I mean, to my son, I'm the old fart who likes the black and white alley and he likes the color alley. And they're, they're both, you know, great ways to enjoy it. And, And I'm happy to have both on my shelf. And uh, and again, I have the picture books as well. Like, I'm definitely a big fan of Outlay. So I'm just glad that we got, you know, these new colorized versions because they're exciting. And it's interesting to see the different choices that are being made. Like I was just looking at um, the first big splash from the first story where uh, Alley's in the middle of the rain. And I love it in black and white because you use such, like, so many lines to show just how torrential the downpour is. And then seeing it in color is fascinating right. because of the colors you take out, Sorry, the line work that comes out, but now having the depth of the, of the color adds a different feel to it as well. It's so interesting. It's the same book, but it's, it feels different, but the same, if that makes any sense.
1: It does, and I, I really appreciate uh, hearing your take on it, because I don't really. The funny thing is, is that you know the the full color book came out in February, right, February fourth, and then uh, February fifth, and um, I'm I'm just beginning to share it with everybody. And uh, as this is being recorded, we're in the middle of our of our lockdown, and I haven't really had a lot of interaction with people that. A, are familiar with the old versions, and B, also have the new versions, and then also are seeing it through somebody else's eyes, the way you're seeing it through your son. So I, I really appreciate uh, that. That means, that means so much. And I, I think, yeah, I mean, you're able to see exactly what I'm talking about, where there's like, this is how I created it originally, but if I want to figure out a way to make it more accessible, right, what can I do to it that where the soul of it is still the same? It's not like you know because I, I wanted to absolutely make sure I wasn't doing some kind of special edition Star Wars thing <laughs> to um, to these books. That's not what I was going for. I didn't want to have you know random three D uh, things in there. You know, and um, so I mean, and that's that's the other aspect is that all you know when we were coming up with the colors, I mean, it's all it's all me, right? And it's funny. They were, um, the coloring for the books took a long time to figure out because originally, um, David and, and all of Scholastic wanted it to be really flat colors. Um, if you're familiar with, um, Wayne's work and some of the uh, babysitters club books and stuff like that, there's not a lot of rendering in this books, you know, there's, it's beautifully done, but it's, it's simplified, you know? And, um, I like the Hilda books. i do not know if you but they're incredible, and that's a very, that's also a very graphic style. But when I just did it on Ali, it didn't work. It didn't work at all, and so I had to come up with another way that was kind of, kind of earthy, but then at the same time uh, a little bit more refined. And um, and a big part of that was that trying to deal with things like that rain stuff. Um <laughs> those rain pages, because Howdy was the first comics that I'm actually doing professionally, I was using a, a Crow Quill nib pen for the first time ever when I was drawing those pages, right? So some of them were really messy, but that was the best I could do, right? And so now that I'm having a chance to be able to revisit it, I am able to fix some of those mistakes. And when like when I colored the rain it looked a little messy and um, and it kind of it was weird. It kind of took you out of the story. It just looks you know, I wanted to make sure that you always feel like you're in Ali's world. And so I actually had to painstakingly erase all of that stuff <laughs> <laughs> to um, and then add it again in a, in a different way to um, to make it work. But um, I and, I really appreciate the fact that you a that you even noticed uh, that means a lot and uh and b that you you really had such a wonderful take and uh so much insight into into the different ways that it's changed so thank you
0: when i when I look at the rain i mean the the original version there's I, there's it feels almost a, a more adult level of loneliness and sadness, and then I guess the colorized version is not quite as depressing, if that, but not in a sad way. Like I always no, it it is the, like, the, like the loneliness made makes sense regardless, because obviously you know you start off with the character being very lonely. Um, but there's something about the black and white which makes it much more stark. And I think as an adult you can appreciate that more. But uh, but then like looking at it through my right. son's eyes, seeing it colored, it still has that emotion, but it's not quite as sad.
1: Right, it's got that uh, when it's in black and white, it has that film noir aspect to it you know and it was like um i remember when i was um, trying to figure out even how i was going to draw a downpour i was looking through um a lot of old comics and uh some calvin Hobbes books where there's a whole sequence in rain and i tried to kind of like do it that way and uh so any kind of feeling that is evoked is really thanks to bill watterson but um at the same time, I, I really liked that aspect, and it was—it wasn't until the incredibly last minute that I finally relented and that I would change the rain. Um, the book was completely done, and I got an extra two weeks extension to erase the rain and and try it a different way. So it was a it was a very last minute last minute change, but um, yeah a lot less messy
0: now. <laughs> that makes me <it> feel better. <laughs> uh, my last kind of question, because I know we're, we've gone over a lot, way past uh, the original time, I promised you. Um, one question I had no, is... it's fine. You just... when, when you're, like you, you mentioned before, the, part of the reason for the reliance on the symbols, et cetera, and d- doing a kind of a silent book was, you know, you're not feeling that you're maybe strong at dialogue. So having done those original books... Uh, using, you know, a, a silent format and relying upon symbols to kind of convey the emotion and again, putting so much in your line work to be the actor and portray these these thoughts and emotions, um, how easy or difficult was it to now go back and start adding in dialogue for characters like Wormy? Was it relatively simple because it was all on the page already and you just kept it simple? Or was it still painstaking to kind of find the right mix?
1: It was hard. To, to get that balance is really difficult. One of the neat aspects of having done the picture books is that I was asked by a lot of libraries and even some comic conventions to do, like, story time, right, with the picture books. So I will get in front of a lot of little kids who really need uh, a lot of excitement to, get their, to, to keep their attention, right? And I'm reading my books with no words, right? And I'm having to describe it and I am translating, you know. So if there's an exclamation point that Wormy would say, I'd say, and then, and then Wormy says, wow, well, check that out, you know. And so having done that enough, I think I kind of got more comfortable with verbalizing the storytelling in a way that I don't think I was because it, it really is a performance, you know, in your mind when you're reading these things. And so um, I've had to go back through and and add that stuff. And it's, it's tricky because you've got to... You can't do too much. Um, it's something I have to actually push back with Scholastic a little bit because I think they just get carried away and there's little things like... Um, Ali and where me um, uh, make breakfast, and it's like, um, well, the picture—it's very clear that they're making breakfast, so I don't need to have that little, you know, like it's—it's be- it's still better to show and not tell, but it's—it's um, it's a balance to make sure that it's really easy to understand. That's the—that's the main thing about the Ali stories, and I absolutely want them to be super easy to understand. Like, I don't know. Um, a lot of people tell me they read them very quickly, which is sad because they take, you know, so long to do. But, um, it's also great because that means that they didn't have any hiccups. Because yeah. as a comic book reader, I know, you know, where like you're, you're reading this comic. Then all of a sudden this fist comes out of nowhere and hits somebody. And you're like, who is that? Who is that? Who, who, where did that fist come from? And then you have to flip back like four pages. Like, Oh, it's that guy. And he's hiding. Okay. Okay. You know, it's like, that is, um, that's a storyteller uh, storytelling failure, right? Like if if something happens that you didn't, you don't know what what you've broken. The, you've broken the spell of being in this world, you know. And so I want I always want to make sure that that spell is never broken. And so that's the line that you that you that's the tightrope you walk when you're trying to add words and you're trying to do this stuff because. Honestly, I wouldn't have any words if it was up to me, right? But I understand, and I need to figure out a way to make this work. And so, trying to add them, it, it, I've, it's taken a while. But now, I actually just finished the second book. It's it's all done, and it's off to the printer. And I'm I'm working on the third book, and uh, I think I've got it now. You know, I think I've got. The rhythm of it. I understand where there needs to be text, where there doesn't need to be text, and and that's the other thing that's great about working with Scholastic is I have a team of people that will I will send it to, and they will look it over, and they will fix all my grammar. They will they will um, add suggestions here and stuff like that. But but it's um it's a team effort, and it's it's great because they're seeing it totally fresh, right? Whereas I know these stories backwards and forwards. They can say things like, well, what's how are we doing here? I can't even figure out what he what, looking at this. What, what? And so I'm like, okay, well, I need to make that clearer so that they understand. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, um, it's, a, it's a process, but um, I, I, I'm, I'm very happy with it. It's, it's incredibly difficult work and incredibly time consuming, but I'm so happy to be able to spend time with my friends here, you know, Alan Wormy and Mrs. Raccoon and everybody. And, and be able to, um, kind of dust them off and, and get them all dressed up and ready to ready to uh, go on the road again. You know, it, it feels it feels good. It's almost like a Muppet movie or something. <laughs> uh, when
0: you when you do like <laughs> when when you're working on the for the upcoming sixth one, um, I'm curious. Like first of all, how much of it may or may not be done but also now that you know, you're know you working on in a colorized format is it going to be colorized right away? Do you do it black and white for yourself first and do you add the dialogue right away as you start it or is that something you're going to do as a second pass? I mean it's obviously for the other volumes it's much older material, it's already been done you did it the first time and they're kind of going back and you're colorizing and adding dialogue but what do you do with new volumes? How do you approach it? Yeah so um,
1: the sixth one is Unique in the fact that it is already written. Like so, uh, the way that I write my stuff is I, I don't write out a script. I um, I write like a summary usually, and then I just start drawing panels and I put them all together, almost like um, if you're familiar with PowerPoint, you know, like arrange the slides in a way. You know, I don't use PowerPoint; I just use Photoshop, and and I just move the stuff around and, and until it looks right, and you know, but it's all done. I I sketch it all out by hand, and then I scan it in and then I cut it up and make it all work and um, I've already written the whole thing um, with the intention of doing the Kickstarter right so um, the entire book is written in pencil and then um, I started inking it and it's about it's about halfway through I've already been inking so it's 120 pages so I think I'm on page like maybe like page 70 in the inks and I don't think I have a choice now, but just to keep going and write it the way it was, you know, intended, and then go back and edit it the same way that I'm doing these right now. Because I, I think if I were to try to alter it at this point, I don't know how it would work, um, because I've already got the story uh, outlined. I've got, I mean, it's already there. All the details are there. All the bubbles are there. Um, it's going to be hard not to think about where the words are going to go, right? But, um, because that is something I have had to do is I have had to resize some panels and resize some characters because words take up a lot of space. Mm -hmm. And, um, even, even if I'm trying to be, uh, brief with what I'm saying, uh, I didn't draw it with the intention of it having work in it. Right. So I have to, I have, I've had to resize, um, some stuff and draw in places that were missing and things like that. Um, So I'm sure that I'll be thinking about that as I'm inking um, book six, but um, I ink it all traditionally. So it's all done on crystal board with uh, brushes and, and ink. And then I scan it and then I color it. So I will probably ink the whole thing just how it is, and then I will scan it, and then I will edit it, and then I will color it just like the other books. And um, I'm hoping that we'll do more after book six. It was just this initial um,
0: contract is for one through six, so it's exciting. Mm-hmm. Would you ever consider you know, self-publishing the sixth volume as the kind of the originally intended kind of version, the black and white with, with no dialogue? I only say that as someone who has the first five volumes, would love volume six to kind of fit next to it. <laughs> In the original format,
1: yeah. You know what? I think I actually would. Yeah, I think I actually would consider doing that. I think because the thing is, is that it will be all done in that format, and that's how it was originally conceived. And so, um, yeah, I think I could actually do that if there was enough demand. You know, I'd probably I actually do a Kickstarter, right? And I would say, <laughs> okay, hey, if there's enough demand for this, then we will make it happen. And um, uh, it, because the funny thing was, is that. Before I decided to get an agent and everything I had already talked with our printer that had done all the other volumes. I got a quote for how much it was going to cost in Canada in Canada and uh, well they're called something else now but that's, that was their name originally and, um, and yeah so I had it all planned out but then it was like um, don't have to worry about that right now mm-hmm. um, but yeah I think, I, I think that would be fun to have the original because like I said, that I still see it in black and white, you know, and I think as adults, when you're reading black and white stuff, you're filling in the colors yourself. You know, you know exactly what this world is supposed to look like, and um, I think kids have a harder time with that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, I, I don't know, who knows how, how our brains work. You know, the, the just like Scott McCloud's, understanding comics you know the simpler something is the more of yourself you put into it hmm. when you're reading it and so I think that that's probably true with black and white comics um but then you also have parents that walk up to to you and say oh is this a covering book you know and then you're like oh gosh okay <laughs> <laughs> you get both sides of it you're like oh but do you understand this is deep you're putting more of yourself and you become one with the story and it's <laughs> like So it's a a
0: tough comic explore It's a tough world. What is nice now that we have these colored versions is that, you know, my my son will have all the colored versions in his bookshelves and I will have the black and white versions in mine. And, you know, I I like both of them, but it would be nice to, you know, I still have my original versions and he'll have his. And, you know, we have similar experiences with it, but we'll have our own copies and they're both different from each other. It's very unique.
1: Really cool. It's uh, it's exciting, I mean, and that's that's the thing. Is like like even now, like working on. So I just finished book two, and like um, I, I want to make sure I'm helping the designer, you know, and you know, like I'm doing all the drawings, and he put together a spine treatment, and um, I was like, no, it needs to look like this, so that when you put them all together, they all line up, and it's like, oh, okay, I get it, and it's like. Um, <laughs> Because that's what I'm thinking about. I, I love, I you know, from a designer standpoint, I love all the stuff to match and everything like that, you know? So.
0: Absolutely. And then the, the second volume, when is it projected to, to come out?
1: Yeah, so currently it's projected to come out September 1st. That is the, uh, that is the date. You can already pre-order it um, from bookstores and things like that uh, September. And then um, book three comes out. Uh, next year I don't think it's February I think it's like April and then uh, book four I think comes out is, you know it's like basically two a year until they're all done and then uh, the sixth book there's a little bit more of a gap because I got a lot more to do on that one um, but uh, yeah the idea is to just keep them coming because especially um, trying to gain traction with new readers uh, the sooner you can get the next book out, the better, you know, so, but, uh, again, the world is very different now, but but um, they're still going along with it. They're very committed to um, to making, um, to, they just love graphic novels. They love everything about them, and Scholastic is just, it's in their blood. You know, they love this, and so um, I'm, I'm excited about it. It's It's a scary time, but I think we'll always have books, and we'll always have that need for characters and and ways to uh, escape and learn
0: things, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, it's always been so nice about Ali is that you know it's it's a very it's a hopeful series. It's about you know being nice to each other and you know very core. Uh, elemental concepts that everyone should be able to grasp onto really easily. And it's just, and it's very, as I said before, and maybe it's overused, but it is heartwarming. Like it's a real emotion that are within these stories and they really connect with people. And I mean, I remember like when I first read it, I was probably 24, 25, and it didn't matter how old I was. I was just bowled over by the genuine emotion that I found within it, and it continues to resonate to this day. And now that I get to experience it with my son, even more so. Like, now I get to, you know, because it's such uh, elemental uh, concepts that you explore that everyone can grasp. So it doesn't matter if I'm, you know, 36 now or if my son is 6. It's still going to resonate. That
1: means so much to me. I really can't. Thank you enough. I mean, uh, I think it was so hard um, because, like I said, with that first thing I did, that was you know images and streets and all this stuff. It was it was all the things that I thought people wanted me to do and things like that. And when it really came down to, was I wanted to tell stories about friends that were animals and sidekicks and all these little. Things that are happening behind the scenes, and you know, no people, and and there's no fights, and there's no violence, and uh, and all the stories have happy endings, and it's like um, I'm so grateful to be able to tell those stories, and then have people that um, that can read them and relate and, and appreciate it, and um, I think that I think it's, it speaks a lot to. Uh, comics readers everywhere, right? I think that I don't think I don't think a lot of publishers give the readers enough credit for all of the different things that they would read and appreciate. And um, I certainly didn't think that Ali uh, would get as much traction, but uh, but I wanted to read him, and so I knew that there would be somebody out there and so I'm glad it connected with you that means so much and now with your son that's, uh, that's absolutely
0: amazing thank you when I was going to record today I was like uh, so you know I was saying Zach I'm I'm going to talk to the guy who you know created Owly and, and I'm going to need to borrow your volume he's like but why I need it for when I read I'm like no no <laughs> just for tonight I'm just going to borrow it so I can reference it he's like okay like he was very not sure about letting me take it out of his
1: room oh my gosh that's amazing so you, you it's so did, amazing. I think that that is the, wonder, the wonderful thing about kids is, is that, you know, there's no, um, it, it's funny, every, every character is on an equal playing field with kids, you know, whether it's Mickey Mouse or Batman or, you know, Superman or Owlie, it's like there, there's no not they don't see the tears of, of things you know it's like it, it's just so it's so pure it's so pure so that's just um that's amazing I, i'm so i'm so i just blown away that it's been able to make a connection with it it means it means so much to me
0: well, I thank you for, you know, bringing Owly into our lives and, uh, you know, for creating it. Again, this this wonderful little owl is adorable and, uh, you know, again, really connects people because it connects to that kind of that childlike wonder within us all and, you know, who isn't sometimes lonely and doesn't want to, you know, make friends and experience the world and have adventures. I mean, that's that's life right there. Yeah, and people are scared of you. They don't know
1: who you are. They they're judging you by your cover, and and you're like, no, that's not who I am. You know, I'm, and there's more to me. And and uh, I think the quiet moments are the things that I really try to focus on. And um, and it's just, uh, I'm just amazed that other people want to share that with me. So, mm-hmm. thank you so much for. For asking all those questions and
0: everything, I hope I didn't talk too much. <laughs> no, no, not at all. Thank, you, thank you so much for uh, for being a guest on the podcast today. And I mean, I'm, I'm always. If you ever want to come back on and just chat about you know the process or, or you know the future volumes, I mean, I'd I'd love to talk to you about them, especially when we eventually get to volume six because I've been waiting for that since uh, since volume five came out. So I'm very excited about that when that drops. <laughs> um, but yeah, whenever you want to come on back and, and chat, I'm uh, again a huge fan, and it's been so fascinating hearing about the. Uh, Kind of the the behind the scenes work that uh, all culminated in LA.
1: It's uh, it's quite a, a labyrinth of, of uh, experiences, but I mean, uh, I, I would love to come back. I mean, I it's it's so. Um, I think that thing about cartoonists is that we spend a lot of time alone. <laughs> you know, with just the nature of what we do, and. Um, <laughs> Uh, I think that's why conventions are so amazing, and I sure hope that we don't lose those uh, because it's so important to be able to connect with people. But um, it's it's so wonderful to talk about it because we just have these conversations in our head all the time, you know. It's <laughs> just, you're trying to justify what you're doing and all this, so it's um, it's uh, it's just incredible to talk about it. So I'll w- I'll be happy to come back anytime. If you have any more questions, just send them along and. I'll get the book six done as soon as I can, so you can
0: have it. <laughs> Excellent. Well thank you thank you again so much. Well
1: thanks, Brad. I really appreciate it. Come on, shenanigans, call McShenanigans, with Adam Chapman with Adam Chapman, call Mick Shenanigans, call Mick Shenanigans, with Adam Chapman with Adam Chapman